Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the General History Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Megan Stewart from the American University School of International Service. Dr. Stewart's book is titled Governing for Revolution, Social Transformation in Civil War. It was published in March 2021 by Cambridge University Press. The book looks at how rebels govern to enhance their organizational capacity and argues that although prevailing views suggest that this is the only reason why rebels govern, actually, Dr. Stewart argues that some rebels undertake costly governance projects that can imperil their cadres during war. The origins for this choice began with the Chinese Communist Party during the Chinese Civil War, when the CCP knowingly introduced challenging governing projects but nonetheless propagated its strategy globally, creating a behavioral model readily available to later rebels. Using archival data from six countries, primary rebel sources, fieldwork, and quantitative analysis, Dr. Stewart in the book underscores the mimicking of and convergence of revolutionary rebels' governance that persists even today, even under very different ideologies. I'm fascinated to have this conversation with Dr. Stewart about her work and hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome, Dr. Stewart. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm really interested in this book, especially for how it covers so many different methods and case studies. Um, So to understand how you got there, how did you get into this book and start doing this research? Yeah, so I started this project very early on. I mean, this was the kind of culmination of my dissertation research, but um, like most other people who have written a dissertation and converted it into a book, it's gone through so many revisions. Um, And in fact, the idea for a a model of governance that other rebel groups were learning from uh, came to me on my flight home from Australia after I was finishing up archival research for the dissertation. Um, This was the last chapter I was working on. And it struck me at that moment that there was all of these rebel groups had that I've been focusing on had been referencing um, the Chinese Communist Party. And they were they were explicitly saying they're modeling their governance after them. But I only picked up on this pattern as I was wrapping up my dissertation. So I took this idea and then ran with it for the book. Um, and it took a lot of revisions and a lot of eyes were on this project uh, and it eventually became what it is today. Um, so that's, that's this, yeah, the origins are, lie in the dissertation, but if you were to read my dissertation and then read my book, uh, it would be extremely different. I mean, there, there are elements of it there. There are uh, kind of connections, but it it is extremely changed and that, a lot of those changes, I should say, are due in no small part to the really helpful guidance and perspectives of many colleagues who have who, who have read it or talked to me about it. Um, but or, origins in the dissertation project. 
That's a great uh, way of understanding how it came into being. I think a lot of us will take inspiration and hope from the idea that the dissertations we slaved so hard over might end up in a book. Um, even if it's something quite different, it can be a useful jumping off point. So thank you for sharing that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And the thing, I mean, uh, I, I presented this book to our PhD students and they asked me, you know, how many times have you edited it? And I, and I tried to, I wanted to convey to them that this is probably rewriting the dissertation maybe five times, uh, just, and just refining the ideas and refining the ideas, but even a small tweak on the theoretical side has consequential changes throughout in terms of the case studies. Um, and so their jaws dropped, but, um, I'm, yes, I imagine others who who have published their dissertation research can can speak to a similar phenomena of just rewriting and rewriting and perfecting and polishing off an idea um, over many, many years. Well, one area I wonder if it came through refinement um, and certainly something that I want to learn from in my own writing was the very gutsy beginning of the book, where literally the very first thing is your actual research question. Um, and I would love to be that bold in my own writing, but I was also interested in the question itself, uh, where you're, you state, why do some rebel groups knowingly undertake costly, burdensome governing projects that undermine their popularity and legitimacy, or even trigger civilian resistance that could imperil their own cadres while other rebel groups do not? I thought this is a fascinating question and a great start. And I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of essentially what is your answer to that question? So my very short answer to the question is if rebel groups have ambitions to restructure societies rather than put off um, these burdensome governing projects until after they achieve victory. So after they're in control of the state, they'll start doing them during war themselves. So uh, rebels with more transformative revolutionary goals are going to undertake these burdensome projects, whereas rebel groups whose goals are less transformative um, and they they're, they would not kind of call themselves revolutionary, or they might say they're interested in preserving the status quo, they're going to avoid these projects as much as possible. So the very short answer is rebel goals determine rebel governance strategies. And if you are a rebel organization with more transformative ambitions, you're going to be willing to take on some of these costly, burdensome governance projects, um, in addition to others, but also the, the costly, heavy, heavy lifts. Great. Okay. And so I'd love to get into more detail about these different kinds of strategies. Um, you provide us a really helpful theoretical understanding of the three different strategies of how rebels might approach governance. Um, can you outline what those are and explain the trade-offs of each option? Yeah. So the first option, um, we'll, we'll start off at the, the kind of basic level, is I conceive of governance projects as involving or, or gov rebel governance essentially involving lots of different projects or institutions. So these could range from um, basic court systems all the way up to land reform, all of which have been conducted by rebels during war. And these various projects, I consider them varying along two dimensions, intensiveness and extensiveness. So intensiveness refers to basically redistribution. Um, so when rebel organizations are taking taking resources and, and things from, from the powerful and giving them to the less powerful, often this took the form of land reform, changing the status of women to include 
requiring in some cases that women go to school, requiring women to serve in, in certain positions. Um, other in other events, it also in, involved uh, changing political institutions. So traditional leaders were kicked out and replaced by somebody more supportive to the rebel organization. So those are more intensive projects because they're fundamentally restructuring basic political and social institutions that often serve as the foundation for typical intersocial interaction. Then, um, so that's a more intensive project. Less intensive projects are projects that don't involve redistribution. Um, projects that pretty much maintain the status quo and just pick up off existing institutions. So as an example, it could be that uh, there's a rebel, captures, a rebel group captures some territory and there's a school that's already functioning. The rebel organization might say, We're, we'll get you some maybe some paper and notebooks, but just keep doing what you're doing. We're not trying to change or meddle with anything. Uh, so that's the first dimension of intensiveness. On extensiveness, that refers to the beneficiaries of rebels' governance, or who who is sometimes beneficiaries, sometimes the people who who have to deal with it, uh, depending on their attitudes towards the rebel organization. Um, but rebels could provide governance just to their supporters, just to active members of their organization. Um, this would be less extensive governance and. By doing that, rebels have the benefit of channeling resources directly to people who already support them. So this is just reaffirming and building up their support base. Um, rebels could also provide services to people who are falling outside of their organization. Um, and if they do that, this could create what's called a free rider problem. And I think this was really, this idea was really highlighted under uh, another researcher, Libby Wood's work. Um, but but the idea is rebels are providing services or some some form of goods to people outside the organization with only minimal expectations for what those people will give back to the rebel organization. So if the rebel group is providing to people who are not active members of the organization, that's kind of surprising. Like, why are you providing services when you when you're not really getting anything back? Uh, when rebels are doing that, that's more extensive provision. Sometimes it's pretty uh, it's pretty surprising how extensive rebel groups can can be. Um, one of the organizations that I focus on, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, they were even providing education and healthcare to Ethiopian prisoners of war who they were fighting at the time. So they can be providing services pretty broadly outside of their um, pr- pretty broadly outside of their kind of supportive group. So given these two dimensions, I argue that there's three strategies that could emerge. The first is less intensive, less extensive governance. So no no redistributive projects, um, and you're really just targeting goods and services to beneficiaries uh, or people who are in your organization. So in my mind, this is the least costly strategy. Um, you're just targeting, you're, you're channeling goods and services to people who are actively supporting you in the moment. And you're not trying to restructure social hierarchies or change political institutions. So you're not really making anybody angry. Um, or you're not really sort of uh, you know, challenging the status quo. Then there's sort of this middling strategy, which is uh, what I call more extensive, but less intensive, where you're providing services a little bit more broadly. So you're providing outside the organization but you're not really doing the intensive redistributive projects. 
Um, the intensive redistributive projects are really they can provoke a they can provoke anger. Um, sometimes civilians take up arms against the rebel group themselves. So by avoiding some of the costly intensive governance projects, rebels you know rebels can sort of save time and effort on that front. Um, but they're providing broadly, which can have benefits in terms of the international community. And I can talk a little bit about that if if we get to it. But but essentially, um, some of my other research demonstrates that when rebels provide services broadly, this sends a signal to the international community um, and sometimes externally can yield benefits to the organization. Um, And then finally, we have more intensive, more extensive governance, which is the most potentially costly form of governance where you're providing services that might be really popular, but you're also engaging in these redistributive projects um, that can really rankle people and really get them upset. And you're also doing it across a two, two broad sets of the population who might not be supportive. So in terms of potential costs, the more intensive, more extensive governance is the most costly. And I wanted to take a minute too to explain how I came up with the two dimensions or the terms for the two dimensions, intensiveness and extensiveness. Um, I was, because I was trying to think through how rebels themselves were understanding their strategic environment. So like how do, how did rebels perceive um, the strategies available to them? Um, And so I was reading as much as I could, the primary sources or the material that rebels themselves might've read and I noticed that a term that was often used was the term intensiveness and extensiveness. So I thought I would use these terms because rebels themselves might be thinking um, about which institutions to build in these terms. So that's, that's how the strategies and the dimensions kind of came into being. That's amazing. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. I can envision the different levels in my head. Um, And it sounds like from um, the introduction to your book, and obviously I've read the book, so I know that this is something that's really at the heart of it, um, is that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, serves as both a model in some ways for your conceptual thinking, but also really does serve as a model for later rebel groups. So given that we've now got this understanding of the two axes and the different ways in which groups might choose to implement them, Um, Can you explain for those of us who may not be as familiar with the CCP and its actions, how, where does the CCP fit into this model? What were the kinds of things they were trying to do? Um, And then we'll get into kind of how groups since then have interpreted their actions. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of like taking a, taking even further step back, just thinking about the, the third strategy of more intensive, more extensive governance for a rebel group that strategy can have a lot of risks and those risks are you're you're potentially provoking civilian anger and resistance and at the same time you're spending a lot of resources just trying to do um, or trying to achieve governance projects that might not relate to your military ambitions so a lot of rebel groups up to that point tended to save these projects until they they achieved victory and and sometimes are explicit about this so Rebel leaders before the Chinese Communist Party who had ambitions for land reform or ambitions for emancipation decided that they were not going to try it during war. They were going to wait until they were successful and they had captured state institutions because there was a little bit more secure. You're not fighting a war at the same time. 
you're already in charge of the state, and then you can embark on some of these projects that might be challenging to implement. The, Ch- the CCP, or the Chinese Communist Party, as a rebel group, really changes that strategic calculation. So they decide that they are going to implement these really challenging projects during war itself. Um, and they know that they're doing it. Um, there's some, some of the research that I've read says that they're warned by the common turn not to be too intense because that's going to alienate, I believe is the word, um, the, the civilian population. And then even in uh, the, so the, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP as a rebel organization has this in the back of it, their mind, but they still embark upon this really challenging strategy or of more intensive, more extensive governance. And it, and it comes back to bite them. So um, there's research by Mark Opper, which suggests that in one location in the South in China, the CCP's governance was so intense, intensely unpopular, it, it caused their collapse um, in the, in the South, which had really consequential um, ramifications for the organization. So this the CCP knows that, um, or the CCP. This is around the nineteen late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties. Knows that some of its governance projects can be challenging. After World War II, um, they are confronted with what to do. What to do uh, in in sort of World War II's aftermath? Um, and Mao again is thinking, you know what? Why don't we try this this really hard radical project again? Um, and some of his advisors were were saying, you know, why don't you why don't you hold off? Uh, it didn't go so well before. M- maybe not. Maybe not this time. Um, he tries it anyways. Similarly, faces pushback against some of the radical land reform projects, and then finally holds off. So, while all of this is going on, the CCP is also trying to propagate its experience globally. So they're inviting. Um, journalists to come in and like see all of the things that they're doing on the ground. Um, and one of them, one of the um, people who they invited ended up writing this book called Red Star Over China, which was really popular and really well read. And it was translated into several languages all over the world uh, and published all over the world. And it was read by active rebel leaders, supportive uh, aspiring rebel leaders, supportive groups. And in this book, they talk about a lot of the, the governance that the CCP had introduced. Um, and so there's evidence that this book was read in um, Greece during the 1940s. And then I recently, after the after my book came out, I was just curious to see how broadly it was read. But um, the partisans in Yugoslavia also were, were reading this book at this at uh Red Star at the time. So um, this, this book in the 1940s and 1930s is, is being read really broadly by people, uh, by either active or aspiring rebel leaders. So that's one of the mechanisms that, or one of the ways this information's been, been being being spread out. Um, and more, I found out all, all about this in Julia Lavelle's book, um, A Global History of Maoism. If you want to learn more, it's Hers is way more complete. Uh, mine's just a snippet. So the CCP is spreading all this information around. They are having training sessions. So they're training aspiring rebel leaders on how to do it. And this is both during the war as a rebel group. They're training other rebel groups. And then once they're successful, they're training other rebel groups. And they're supporting other rebel groups who are doing similar things. And 
By support, I mean not just financial resources, but also military resources or political resources. So writing in their newsletters or something like that, that they support some other rebel organization. So through all of the CCP's efforts, essentially what this does is it helps crystallize that a strategy of more intensive, more extensive governance is available, like is is a viable pathway to victory during war um, for, for other rebel leaders. And, you know, up to this point, it wasn't that common, but what the CCP really strove to make this strategy um, sort of cognitively available to rebel leaders later on. Um, so they they would know like, oh yes, we can pursue our ambitions in the same way that the CCP did. Um, and CCP leaders themselves would talk about their experience as a model. Um, and even in, uh, in and even in Mao's work, he would refer to the CCP's experience um, as 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 an experience to be remembered in history as sort of like this template. So the CCP was, or at least some in the CCP were were thinking that the way that they would that they approached the conflict was going to be a, a unique template, and then they worked really hard to try and spread this information globally. So what did this mean for later rebel leaders? For later rebel leaders, um, if you're a rebel organization, you're you've decided you're going to, you know, pursue some. You're you're, you're in the middle of a civil war. You're starting off a civil war, um, and you're trying to figure out how, like, how do I achieve how do I achieve my goals? Um, and you're looking for examples. And Mao's propaganda made it really easy to come across the CCP's approach. And so, if you're a rebel leader, you come across the CCP's approach pretty easily. And um, like, why do some some decide to adopt it? Some decide not to. So some figure we're going to imitate this thing almost exactly, and some don't. And what leads people to decide to imitate the model exactly, or almost exactly, or not, is really how much the rebel organization's goals match the CCP's ambitions. So as I as I mentioned earlier, I conceive of rebel goals being more or less transformative. So if you have transformative or goals, and that's what you want the organization to do, you look at the CCP and you see that the CCP really transformed society, um, and you see a lot of similarities in what the CCP achieved and what you, your organization, wants to achieve, and that match in goals leads rebel leaders to try and imitate the CCP's approach. They they think the CCP is just the absolute exemplar um, of how to achieve this thing that we want to achieve. So we're going to do the same thing that they do. And then over time, um, as more and more rebel groups with similar ambitions are implementing the the CCP's model of more intensive, more extensive governance, what emerges in in is what's called a prototype in social psychological research. Sort of like a if you closed your eyes and you were trying to think about how a rebel group with revolutionary goals or more transformative goals would would behave, you would envision. Um, some you would envision them doing all this governance in, in, in a particular way. And that prototype actually has a lot of, um, I don't, it, 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 in, in the social psychology research that, that has a lot of, uh, that serves to sort of boost conformity to the prototype. Like once it's there, once it exists, others want to imitate it a little bit more. Um, so it adds kind of pressure to conform to this, this particular way of doing things. And 
you you uh, undertake governance in a particular way because that's just what you do. That's the appropriate thing given your situation. Um, and then over time, the CCP and other rebel groups or other transnational networks who were embedded in the system would often reward rebel organizations who conform to the CCP's approach. Um, and they would reward them by propagating or sending information about the organization. They would provide them with resources. Um, sometimes they would sponsor them in the UN. Um, so when, when uh, uh, like if a rebel group such as Mozambique was successful, they could either support or talk about or bring in rebel leaders from other countries um, to talk about their their struggle or or something like that. Um, so as a result, like over time, you have rebel organizations with more transformative goals imitating the CCP. Um, and then this sort of conformity was just really powerful, even outside of rebel ideologies. So you have organizations like um, Hezbollah studying the the Viet Minh, studying the CCP, and making recognizing the similarity in goals, even despite different ideologies, and deciding to provide relatively similar governance. Um, and even, even Al-Qaeda strategists explicitly talk about Mao's governance strategy. They recognize that the strategy is part of a broader revolutionary project. Um, and that's what that's just what you have to do if if you want to pursue revolution um, and you want to transform uh, society as a rebel organization. This is just the the Mao's approach and the Chinese Communist Party's approach as a rebel group was just the way. Um, so the CCP really it, it really changed the strategic calculus and and what was cognitively available to rebel leaders at the time. And then if you weren't a if you weren't a rebel group with these more transformative ambitions, you were still aware of the CCP um, and you were still aware of what they did. You just avoided, you, you sort of framed your strategies uh, in opposition to or like backed away from this, the, the CCP's model. So you, you could be aware of it, but you would decide I'm not going to do what the CCP did or I'll only introduce elements of it, but it's, it's not exactly what we're, we're trying to do. So they, the CCP loom, looms quite large um, for, for rebel groups moving forward. So that I had obviously some idea of the scale of this before I read your book. Um, I also want to shout out to Julia Lavelle's research on Maoism globally. Um, but that just makes it even more, hearing all of that in your own words, makes it even clearer to me what a challenge it must have been to choose only a few case studies, given how many rebel groups were influenced to various degrees by the CCP's model. And yet reading the book, it seems very clear um, why each of the case studies contributes. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit which case studies you chose, and perhaps more importantly, how did you narrow it down to those? Yeah, that's a a great question. So the the cases that I chose were um, the Airtrain Liberation Front and the Airtrain People's Liberation Front. So I have a, ch- a chapter on um, two Airtrain rebel groups. And then I focus on um, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in South Sudan. And I have um, Fredeline, the East Timor rebel, or, rebel organization seeking independence. Um, and then finally, I have Hezbollah. So the first two cases in Eritrea and South Sudan, 
I picked those cases because I wanted to, um, both of those cases offer variation over time in the rebel groups that emerged or in the goals of the rebel groups. So uh, in the Eritrean case, the first rebel organization that emerged was the Eritrean Liberation Front. um, And they were much more limited in their ambitions relative to the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Uh, And then the EPLF kind of formed from the Eritrean Liberation Front. So there was good over time variation. Uh, Similarly, with the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, that organization stayed the same, but their goals changed over time. And that if my argument is rebel goals determine their governance strategies, that shift in goals should also indicate or that shift in goals should also precede a shift in in governance strategy. So it would it provides a way for me to test um, really what I think is is driving the association that we see between goals and governance. In addition to that, the two groups are pretty close to each other. Um, so at the time, Ethiopia or Eritrea was was under Ethiopian rule and South Sudan was under Sudanese rule. And those two countries were neighboring one another. So they were very, very close. The groups operated at the same time. Um, they were familiar. They knew that other uh, that the other conflict was ongoing in, you know, right next to each other. So the two, those two cases were just really, really similar um, and enabled me to hold constant almost all of the alternative explanations and variables um, that I was concerned about and just trace how, um, how goals related to governance strategies first of all, and then second of all, that the mechanisms that I think were operating were also operating uh, or were were operating in the way that I thought that they were. So that's why I picked those two cases. Well, I'd Um, love to, given what a great open you've given me before we move on to the other two cases, um, how did that comparison turn out? Do you want to share a little bit about the findings with our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So um, essentially what I find, uh, we'll, we'll start with Eritrea. They ELF, this was the first organization, um, when they emerged, they said that they wanted to, they either wanted autonomy or independence, and they were really interested in preserving, quote, the status quo and preserving existing culture. So when I say, quote, what I'm quoting from are actually archival documents um, with the ELF talking to either the U.S. or U.S. officials or British officials about what the organization's goals were at the time. And so what you see at this early period where their goals are very limited, so they're, they're not trying to transform anything. They're, they're quite literally saying they're trying to preserve existing, you know, social and political institutions. Um, so what their governance is at this time is very, very limited. Rather than a rebel organization providing healthcare to civilians, they actually have to rely on civilians to get their own healthcare. And this information, I should add, is collected from um, both British and American archival documents, which is those types of documents are actually really useful because the British had a um, the British were part of a U.N. agreement after the World War Two to help administer Eritrea. And then the U.S. had a military base in Eritrea at the time. So there was actually a lot of good a lot of good information from these two countries on this case at the time. 
so this is what the ELF, uh, the ELF is, is using civilians for healthcare. Um, so they're not providing it, they're getting it. They would tax civilians, um, or if they needed something from civilians, they would like write them a receipt and said, when we're victorious, bring this receipt to us and we'll pay you back for all the things that we've taken from you or, or gotten from you. Um, and that was really their only governance. It wasn't really robust at the time. Um, and what happened is the organization started to expand and the ELF also sent some of its cadres to China to train um, and to get a sense of how the CCP operated. Um, and some of the cadres were just there to, you know, like, this is something we have to do. And this is a box I'm going to tick. But a few of the cadres who went over there um, were extremely in, interested in the CCP's model and the Chinese model of governance, uh, which was more extensive and more intensive. And so then they came back and they were really excited. They're like, this is this is the right way to do things, what the CCP did. We need to do we need to execute this like really intensive governance projects and the leaders of the ELF were kind of surprised and they wrote to US and British officials saying, you know, the, all of these cadres have come back radicalized. We're, we're, we're not going to send them to, to China anymore. This is too much for us. Um, over time, the, uh, the ELF split and those cadres who went to China who were radicalized, who, who came back radicalized, they knew all about the Chinese Communist Party's model during the war. They formed their own organization. Um, and long before the, these groups or these individuals had decided to split off from the ELF and before they went to China, they were already um, pretty radical in terms, of, in terms of their kind of goals and ambitions. And so when they form their own group, they decide that they're, they're pursuing really major social change and social restructuring. And they write this in their goals that they're going to transform hierarchies along a number of dimensions. They're going to make women equal, ethnicities equal, religions equal in Eritrea. So they're, they're really restructuring society. They're going to build all these new institutions. Um, they're going to, you know, uh, they're going to have independence or they're going to seek independence. So they've, they've laid out all of their ambitions and they decide, explicitly decide, and they say that they're, they literally say, we're going to do, uh, we're going to follow the Chinese experience. And we're going to follow the Chinese approach. Um, and so in practice, they literally structure their political institutions initially, almost one for one in, in terms of what the CCP did and what they did and uh, uh, in terms of what the CCP did and, and the EPLF did. And when I say one for one, the CCP allocated seats in their new political institutions by class and the EPLF initially did the exact same thing. Um, and they said they did the exact same thing based off of, because they, that is what China did. Um, so they, they were very conscientious about replicating what the CCP had done. Um, and they also wanted to tell everybody that they were doing, you know, they were, they were doing everything that the CCP had done too. So they were writing these really extensive newsletters to um, members of the diaspora in the U S um, and to other you know, Marxist, leftist, anti-colonial organizations saying, look at all the governance that we've produced. Look at all the things that we're doing. You know, we're, we are pursuing our objectives in the way that you expect. And we're conforming to what the CCP has done. 
So um, that's what the EPLF did. Um, and that, that's really the key distinction. So it's, it's the same people in the ELF and the EPLF. Uh, what's different about they have the same information, they're operating the same place, same context, um, but one organization that splits from the ELF de- defines their goals very differently and then pursues a very different governance approach. Amazing. What a great case study to have included to prove your model. That's amazing. Yes. Um, so because I cut you off before, could I ask you please to tell us a little bit about how you chose uh, the East Timor rebel movement and Hezbollah as your other two case studies? So after I had the ELF um, and Eritrea and South Sudan, um, I was really interested in I wanted something different, and I also wanted to look at variation in ideology because I could imagine that one of the strongest critiques that I might get would was that uh, ideology is really important in, and how do you know it's not rebel goals that are driving these decisions? How do I, it could be rebel ideologies? So I wanted to see organizations that were. Um, that were operating in different contexts, but still organizationally similar um, and had similar goals, but different ideologies. And so um, in East Timor, the organization um, initially said it was not communist at all, and it was providing governance and imitating the CCP's approach before they officially adopted communism. So So to me, this was an indication that it's not necessarily ideology that's driving these decisions because leftist ideology or the communist ideology of the East Timor case um, happened after the group had decided on its governance approach. And then with Hezbollah, that's completely not leftist at all. Um, They're a jihadist organization. And so I wanted, this was sort of like a hard, harder test to see if it's traveling to somebody who's not even close ideological kin. Um, and we do see it travel to Hezbollah, even though they're a jihadist organization, um, but they are using very similar terminology to describe their goals. Um, and they're certainly learning and familiar with the CCP's uh, approach. And in fact, um, on so Hezbollah, ha- their news website has, their, their news organization has a website. And even on their website, they'll They've mentioned in, on their news site, they, they mention the Viet Minh and the CCP, sort of like a rebel organization. So that's why I chose those two cases. I wanted to look for, look for things that as organizations were somewat similar to the Eritrean and uh, Sudanese groups, but had different ideologies and were operating in sort of different colonial continental contexts. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And again, I encourage listeners to read the full book to find out all of the very fascinating details of these case studies that are not usually in the same book. Um, So you mentioned a little bit already that you used um, archival documents and that the British and the American ones were particularly helpful for the Ethiopian and Eritrean research. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the sort of methods and data that you used throughout the book um, and how you went about that. Yeah, so the data that I used primarily for the qualitative material or the qualitative sections tended to be largely archival um, and, and some secondary sources. And the reason for this is that my theory is pretty much operating on the rebel leader level. 
Um, so this is a this is a story or a theory about how rebel leaders make decisions. And so I needed to find information about how rebel leaders, so the, really the upper echelon of the rebel organization, were interacting and like what they were producing, what they were writing about, how they were talking to people about their decisions, um, and oftentimes. Uh, so, so I needed something that was, I needed data that would, that would capture that. And our, and the archival data that I had, um, and the primary sources that I had really capture those interactions. Um, so the archival data comes from different places in the different places across the U S um, and in the UK, I have worked from Australia and East Timor or archival material from Australia and East Timor, um, and then also Portugal and Sweden. And uh, the, the in in writing this, I would say that there were some shadow cases, so cases that I aren't explicit, but I, I researched a lot to make sure that my theory still applied there, and they were the Lusophone Africa uh, National Liberation Movements. So there was a lot of archival material in Portugal and then in in, in Sweden. Um, so I uh, and the Swedes actually would uh, provide would provide support for governance. Uh, but not necessarily the military side of rebel groups. So it was a, the 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 Swedish archival documents were useful because they were providing to specifically the governance arm of rebel organizations. Um, and so no, I don't speak all of those languages, but neither did the rebel leaders. So uh, the rebel leaders would often find some sort of either English or French. Typically, um, that was those were common languages between rebel leaders and external, you know, external interlocutors. Um, and so I could read those two, those, those languages and anything else that I found, I could, I could get translated. Um, so I, I would, I, that's how I collected, um, the archival data and, and that's, that's what I used. Um, I also did some field work in Lebanon, but it wasn't it, the, when I went there in 2015, it was actually the height of the Islamic State, um, and Lebanon sh- shares a border with Syria, and there was a lot of security concerns, so it wasn't as fruitful as it possibly could have been. Um, so I did some field work in in Lebanon for a little bit, but because of the security situation at the time, I wasn't able to get the high-ranking interviews that I would have that would have best been used for the theory. Um, and then I, and then I spent a year as part of my dissertation research, collecting data on rebel governance, um, using a data set that had already existed and basically just adding to that data set by including information about some of the education and healthcare that rebels provided. Um, and that was, that was a year long undertaking that, uh, uh, collecting the quantitative data that I never went into again. So as someone who does archival work myself, uh, I know that it's really amazing to sit there and find exactly what you are looking for and you need for your research. But another really fun thing to find are tidbits that you maybe were never aware of before and might only exist on that piece of paper. And you may not be able to include them in your dissertation or your book, but they're great anyway. So I was wondering if you might have one or two just great finds you'd be willing to share from what sounds like a massive amount of work. Yeah. So, okay. My two absolute favorite uh, things are, there was this first um, Emil Clark Cabral, who was the leader of um, the, the a rebel, a national liberation movement in Guinea-Bissau. He's basically writing to the Swedish government asking for a radio 
um, to broadcast because he wants to broadcast what I kind of conceptualize as rebel NPR. Um, and so he's, he's writing that he wants to, um, he's got a radio program where going to talk about like the rights of persons and the history of the country um, and the history of decolonization movements at the same, at the, at the time. Um, and so I, to me, I just thought it was like a really interesting idea, a, a way of, um, oh, an interesting idea and how, and how like rebel leaders themselves are trying to, trying to think about, um, I don't know, like building a, a national consciousness and uh, a national identity. So I thought, I, I just, I, and in my mind, I immediately thought, oh, this is like rebel NPR. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, so, and then the other thing that I thought was really interesting, I was doing archival work. I was uh, in Syracuse um, because one of the leaders of um, the Mozambican National Liberation Movement, Free Limo, uh, was was a professor there, um, and he raised funds and collect collect funds for rebel organizations and uh, or national liberation movements. And this was like an advertisement for. A, a calendar for the Mozambique liberation struggle. Um, and they said that they're like on each month, there's poetry or artwork produced in the field there. Um, like the holidays would include um, holidays related to the uh, like anti-colonial movement. Um, and then they, there was like this, I don't know, a funny line that was just uh, and, and, you know, by now, before December 26th, Mao's birthday. Um, so just, and this is like a, in Mozambique. So to me, it was both an indicator that, yes, people are probably know quite a bit about Mao and at least are familiar with the CCP because they're, you know, commemorating Mao's birthday on this calendar. So I thought that was one of my um, favorite, favorite finds. Amazing. That's exactly the kind of thing that can be really fun to come across in an archive. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so again, I'd really like to encourage our listeners to read the whole book. It's one of those books that you can really dive into and find a huge amount of detail. And yet somehow all the pieces also go together, which is amazing to find. And I'm sure it's going to be a really helpful resource for future research as well. So thank you very much for the book. And this feels like a really mean question to ask after talking about such amazing, but obviously probably exhausting work. What are you working on now or what are you working on next? Yeah. So um, this project, I think the, the, the key thing that I really took away from this project was the extent to which, um, or I guess I think there's like an idea in researchers' minds or in, in people's minds that like what a revolution is, is there's like this period of contestation. And then after that period, there's this, somebody wins and then the revolutionaries just introduce all these projects to restructure society in interesting ways. So it's like a sequential project process. Um, but in researching my book, I, the, for me, the most interesting thing that I took away was that that is not, it's not a sequential process. It's, a, it's sometimes a simultaneous process um, and kind of like decoupling revolution from the sequence to this, this more complicated um, simultaneous event. Um, and so from that, what I was really interested in, and then the other thing that I saw too, was that rebel groups were doing a lot of the same governance projects that revolutionaries in the traditional way. So like 
revolutionaries who had captured the state and then gone to like restructure society in a number of ways, those projects were, you know, both very similar as rebel groups and as regular revolutionaries, I would I'll call them. Um, and I was just, I was kind of curious, like, what are the consequences of this, right? So if a, if a rebel group is trying to do or does do land reform during war and they maybe don't succeed, what happen, What happens? Like, do people still claim that land? Uh, for women who maybe have never experienced working in political institutions, if they had the opportunity to do so under a rebel group, does this change their behavior afterwards? Uh, and then similarly for, for revolutions and um, in like the regular way I was reading when basically when COVID happened, uh, my sense of time, and I think like other people, my sense of time sort of shifted. Um, and that got me interested in how like revolutionaries try and change understandings of time. And I got really interested in the French revolution because they have a, that's one of the things that a they're calendar. The, yes. Yes. That's one of the things that they wanted to do is change the calendar. Um, but that, that failed spectacularly, but we still consider, I mean, by failed spectacularly, nobody, nobody is on the, the French Republican calendar anymore. Um, but, uh, we consider the French revolution as a success, but like all the projects that the Jacobins tried to introduce, it's, it's really varied and heterogeneous in terms like each individual project, some were successful, some weren't, you know, the metric system has its origins in the French revolution. That's universal. That's really successful. Um, but other things less so. So like what explains why are some, what are the consequences of all these like really radical projects to transform societies? Why are some successful or more successful than others? Um, and if one fails or is abandoned, does it leave any, like, is there any lingering legacies that might be interesting to know about? So that's, that is uh, my second major project. It is a book and several articles um, that, are, that I'm currently, currently plugging away away on. So if people have ideas, please email me. <laughs> well, I can definitely say that I will be reading that. Uh, it sounds absolutely fascinating and will probably answer a lot of questions that I've come across and always been like, huh, I wonder what happened with that. So hopefully we will be able to get you back when that second book is published. But until then, thank you very much for your time today. Listeners, please do go read the book um, and best of luck with your future research. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great being on.